according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 19, looking at verses 1 through 9. We've covered a lot of this already. I think the bulk of our day is going to be spent in verse 8 today, but there are some last issues we need to look at in verse 9. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's faithfulness to guide and direct our thinking. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, for your grace and truth, for the Word of God that is alive and powerful. We thank you for the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that it contains, the blessings that it has for us on a daily basis. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this thing is bugging me this morning. Ah, that's why. I came unclipped. All right, so Proverbs 19. We start with uh, a three-verse segment, verses 1, 2, and 3, in the poetry there. This was point one in the outline. Chapter 19 begins with three verses, warning to maintain personal integrity no matter the cost. And we have the, the poetry, this is unique. I haven't found anything else like it anywhere else in Proverbs where you have three verses, each with two halves, and it's, it's one A that sets the table, and then the other five parts, 2A, I'm sorry, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, they all um, form the antithesis of the walk of integrity. And so we worked our way through that had some sub-points and the issues there. Go past these. Then to point two, as was studied in Proverbs 14.20, in this fallen world, friendships live and die based on money. So the second thing we looked at is verses four, six, and seven. So point one, we covered verses one, two, and three, and in point two, we're covering verses four, six, and seven. Verse 4 says, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Verse uh, 6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. And finally, verse 7, all the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. And so, uh, as we've seen, uh, this was what was taught back in Proverbs 14, the idea that if you have a lot of friends, I mean, if you have a lot of money, uh, you're going to be a magnet for all kinds of friends. And then when the money disappears, uh, it's like the magnet gets reversed and you're now repelling people. They're now being pushed away from you in that uh, reversed polarity. Talked about the prodigal son, talked about Job losing all his friends, talked about Jesus. Even Jesus said that Luke 16 passage where we were last week is curious to me when he says, make friends by the wealth of mammon. So that when it fails, they may uh, welcome you into the eternal dwellings. And that's a, that's a curious lesson to me. I keep thinking about that. All right. We then get to point three, which we also introduced last week. These explicit will not statements. Let's look at these. We're looking at verse five and verse nine. Verse five and verse nine. And they're not really connected in the poetry of it, but they are connected in concept, in subject matter. So talking about liars. 
In verse 5, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who tells lies will not escape. So we've got the false witness in uh, 5a and he who tells lies in 5b. Saying the same thing, just in two different ways. The false witness and he who tells lies uh, will not go unpunished and will not escape. That there is an eternal destiny for Satan. There is an eternal destiny for all the offspring of Satan. That uh, when he says, depart, go into the fire that has been prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Ultimately speaking, that fire is the provision in the angelic conflict and humanity comes along and either lines up with that or lines up with the Lord for, uh, for salvation. Anyway, these are will, will not statements. Verse 5 says, will not go unpunished and will not escape. Verse 9 says, will not go unpunished and will perish. And so that's kind of fun because it flips the will not statement to make a positive affirmation, will perish. Uh, verse 9 is almost identical to verse 5, at least in the first half of it anyway. A false witness will not go unpunished. That's word for word, letter for letter, uh, identical to verse 5. But the second part, he who tells lies will perish. And that perishing is the one that's without escape. It's, uh, it's eternal. There's no uh, second chance. There's no uh, spend enough time in purgatory and you can escape and, and make it to heaven eventually. No, it is an eternal destiny. And uh, we understand that for what it is. So you will not go unpunished, you will not escape, which is parallel to you will perish. The punishment is eternal perishing. And so the language shouldn't really surprise us. The language is such that it, it uh, coincides with what we have in oh, John 3, for example, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but has everlasting life. We understand the language of perishing is the language of eternal destruction. The Hebrew is abad, uh, where the name abaddon comes from. He's the angel of the abyss. He is the destroyer and the issues there. All right, so uh, we looked at most of this last week, ran out of time before we could get to the Isaiah text, I think. Um, And actually, I don't think we even got to the, uh, yeah, we didn't even get to the Isaiah text. So uh, let's just pick up in John 8, 44, so that we are reminded that issues of truth and lies, truth and falsehood are fundamental. Like life and death, they're fundamental. In God is life. God is true. And so murder and lying are equated in ways that our culture usually doesn't do. You know, our culture uh, would not put lies on the same level playing field with murder. You know, but God does. He absolutely does. Because murder is an attack on the, the element of life within God, and lies are an attack on the element of truth. Uh, that is, our God is the God of truth. And so the Bible puts those things in tandems very frequently. And in John 8, 44, when Jesus rebukes these guys and says, you are of your father the devil, and uh, I don't want to get lost in this chapter again because I think we spent more time than I intended last week on this, on this chapter, but uh, he says in verse 44, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. Notice he was a murderer from the beginning. A lot of people attach that to his influence over Cain and how Cain murdered Abel and and there's clearly there's a there's a statement there that Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. So that is true. But I think the beginning is even earlier than that. 
Now, Satan was a murderer before Adam. Satan was a murderer in the angelic dispensation on the original angelic earth. And uh, we've got little clues of that here and there, and uh, we'll probably see another one here shortly in Isaiah chapter 14. But he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. You see how they're tied together? Murder and lying. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so really I think this concept takes, when you, when you bring this idea back into Proverbs 19, when you see that the liar will not escape, when you see that he will not go unpunished, that he will perish, that this is, uh, this is really a, a fundamental issue in, in all the scriptures. All right, so next we'll go to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. And hopefully we're opening our eyes and we're seeing a bigger, a bigger truth than just the basic um, don't tell lies. You know, I mean, the, really the, the basic way to teach the, the passage on, in Proverbs 19 is tell the truth. Don't tell lies. There's consequences for telling lies. And, and, and yes, we get that, that's true, and that's the, that's the basic way to approach the passage. What I'm telling you this morning, though, is that these are fundamental issues in the conflict between God the Father and Satan. And when Satan rebelled, he had five I wills. And God says, you will not. <laughs> God says, let me tell you what you will. Okay? And so, to me, it just jumps out when you're reading these passages on the liars, and he, he makes these strong will not statements will not go unpunished, will not escape. That he's, he's deliberately using that language of will not in order to refute and, and to personally rebuke the, uh, the adversary in his five-eye wills. So in Isaiah 14 we've got the description of Satan before his fall where he was called Lucifer in the, uh, in the Latin Vulgate. But verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In the Latin, that would be Lucifer. In the Hebrew, it's Hillel. Hillel ben Shachar. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Keep in mind, the angels were so populous, they were organized into nations, into groupings. But you said in your heart, I will, that's the first one, ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. That's, by the way, at the right hand. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. He has five I wills. He covets a seat that's not his. The seat belongs to Jesus. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? But the whole idea that he can replace God, I will make myself like the Most High God. No, you won't. <laughs> okay? And so God tells every liar what you will not do. You will not go unpunished. You will not escape. That's what we're seeing today in Proverbs 19, verses 5 and 9. Even beyond verse uh, 14 here in, in the Isaiah text, he says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. So there's learning that will happen. Humans can learn from the fall of uh, the angels and elect angels will be learning from the fall of angels. 
Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Again, we saw nations, now we see kingdoms. Who made the world like a wilderness? Here's the tohu in the famous tohu wabohu tandem of Genesis 1-2. Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? That's a big clue right there. Did not allow his prisoners to go home. And if you think about it, we just had the 75th anniversary of the liberation of, of uh, Auschwitz, right? And they, they were talking about the, the uh, World War II and what the Nazis were doing furiously as they were losing the war before those camps could be liberated. They were accelerating all of the death that they possibly could. They didn't want their prisoners to go home. And uh, even uh, and Bonhoeffer and other, other uh, political prisoners uh, were not allowed to go home. They were executed before their camps could be uh, could be uh, rescued or liberated. And so if Satan is not allowing his prisoners to go home, this gives us a clue what that angelic warfare was all about in the uh, angelic world before, before uh, Adam. Okay? And a lot of people don't think about this because the first thing that usually when you think about an angel is you're thinking about a spirit being, a light being, a, uh, an eternal being that can't die. Well, presently angels are immortal. Presently angels are in their eternal state because angels are already in their eternity future. We're not in our eternity future yet. We're still in our temporal present. But now, do you ever stop to think that maybe the angels used to have a, a temporal present before they entered into their eternity future? See? And if they had a temporal present during their stewardship on the old earth, then uh, could they have been killed? Could they have died? I think the indication here is that that was indeed the case. All right. So we have the I wills, the I wills, and then the you will not. And there's even some you will not here in this context as well. Um, Where did I stop? Uh, Prisoners in verse 17. It goes on, it says, All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with a slain who are pierced with a sword, who will go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever the destiny of forgetfulness that, uh, that uh, we've talked about before. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. They must not. So more of these will not statements. Uh, Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5. Why are we looking there? Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. It's a good way to illustrate how fundamental the issues of truth and lies are that the liar from the beginning, the murderer from the beginning, and the liar from the beginning is tempting Adam and Eve. And in the temptation, notice what gets betrayed. He, uh, it slips out. The, the rebellion that he's already had is now communicated. Because the serpent tells the woman, you surely will not die. There's the lie. And now look what slips out. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, 
Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Isn't that interesting? That was his fifth I will. That was his pinnacle of his rebellion. That I will be like the Most High God. And now he takes that and he puts it into his lie and he feeds it to Adam and Eve. I don't believe Adam was here to witness the whole thing. He was right here on hand and heard every bit of it. And um, so this is the lie that he's putting forth. The consequence of this lie is eternal death. To eat of this fruit, to be a fallen human, is to head to the fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. Finally, I think um, Isaiah 59. Back to Isaiah again. I was trying to show how truth and lie are elements of this angelic conflict between the Father and Satan. And why it's so important that not only are we saved, but that we stay in fellowship. Because if we're carnal, functionally we're no different from the unbeliever. Functionally. If we're carnal, then we're not listening to the truth. If we're carnal, then God's not listening to our prayers. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. So if you find that uh, prayers have been deactivated, it's not because His arm is too short and He can't reach you, and it's not because His ear is too dull and He can't hear you, is that He's choosing not to hear you and He's choosing not to raise His arm to help you. Why is he choosing that? Because we're carnal. It says in verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. We call this operational death. You're out of fellowship. You're carnal. You have a break, a death of your fellowship between you and God. That's separation. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Again, murder and falsehood are linked together. So many passages. Your tongue mutters wickedness. And it spreads. You have, you have so many individuals that are in this personal category. How does that get reflected in your culture? How does that get reflected in your society, in your community? Well, you find that it predominates and the whole community is a bunch of liars. <laughs> Verse 4, no one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. I mean, they're so steeped in this system of lies that uh, he, even the pregnancy language here goes from conception to birth like that. It says, uh, anyway, the whole culture is given over to this, and it's terrible. Anyway, uh, I can probably skim through five and following, but you're going to notice, I mean, the description of Israel in Isaiah's lifetime, this is what we're looking at, and how wicked is it? They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. From that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Uh, it just gets, it cycles into worse and worse patterns. All right, get down to verse 9. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness 
for brightness, but we walk in gloom. It gets so bad that we reach a point as a culture where we say there are, there's no answers. There's no hope. We'd like to have light, but it's not coming. It's just darkness. It'd be great if we could see brightness again, but it's just gloom. So where's the hope? We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. Uh, All of us growl like bears. We moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. What a depressing text, right? I mean, personally, corporately, collectively, for a community, for a nation to, to be experiencing this is, uh, is, uh, is horrible. So our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Notice, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. So where's the hope? (laughs) Okay, this seems pretty bad. Well, guess what? There is hope, but it's not going to come from us. The answer for Satan and all the lies that have ever infected the cosmos is for Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. So somebody who tries to kind of do a moral reform, he's just setting himself up for society to attack him. Now the Lord saw and was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. He was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Is there any righteous? No, not one. So what does he do? Well, his own arm brought salvation to him and his, upright, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. See, the Savior is going to go forth. You get down to verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion to those who turn from transgressions in Jacob, declares the Lord. Anyway, this is a marvelous chapter. It's powerful in so many ways. It addresses the angelic conflict. It addresses the fall of man. It addresses the national redemption of Israel. It speaks to salvation in so many different levels. But we have this uh, conflict between truth and falsehood. The conflict between what is true and what is false and how the lie just spreads. It infects everything. And before you know it, a culture is so saturated in the lie that the one who has the, the audacity to speak the truth, that, that's a revolutionary act, right? I mean, man. And uh, right now our culture is so saturated right now, it is just everybody knows that evolution is true. Everybody knows that uh, you know, Big Bang is the real science and the Bible is fairy tales and mythology. Everybody knows that, that uh, I mean, they don't even know male and female anymore. And, and we're the ones that are called the idiots. But everybody knows. See? And it's just, it's like bizarro world. Everything's upside down and backwards. And, 
if you think, how much longer, Lord, can this uh, can this go on? All right. Well, that's enough on that. We can move on now to verse eight, which is point four in the outline. So we're turning back to Proverbs chapter nineteen. Yeah, we're kind of taking this chapter a little bit out of order. We we did verses 1 through 3, we did verses 4, 6, and 7, then we did verses 5 and 9. So before we can move on to verse 10, I want to make sure we don't miss verse 8. And it would be very sad to miss verse 8, because verse 8 is uh, is, is something else. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in verse 8. He who gets, and, and cross off the word wisdom there, it's not chachmah, it's heart. The word is lave. He who gets heart loves his own soul or loves himself. He who keeps or he who guards understanding will find good. So acquire heart and guard understanding. This is what the verse expects us to do. Acquire heart and guard understanding. Get a heart or get heart, we would say. Get heart. The verb kana is a verb of acquiring, of gaining, of of, uh, getting. Sometimes it could be begetting, it could be purchasing, it could be stealing. Kana doesn't tell you how you get something, it just tells you you got something. And so if a a woman gets a a child, then we say she she begat, she birthed a child. Uh, If you go to the store and, and get milk, we would say you purchased milk. Or maybe you stole it, I don't know. But you, any, anything you acquire, that's the, that's the point. The point is kana, kana just means get. And it, it doesn't really tell you how you got it. Whether you bought it or stole it or built it or, or birthed it or created it out of nothing. Just you didn't have it before, you have it now, you got it. Okay? Do you get what I'm saying? You got it. Alright. And so the point is the getting. And here the point is the getting and the getting of heart. The getting of heart. And I didn't realize how unusual this was until I started to think through how many times that Proverbs warns against or how many times does Proverbs describe heart deficiencies. Again and again and again there, is, there are expressions like lacking heart. Usually it's translated as lacking sense. New American Standard likes to use the word sense when, when there's a heart deficiency. Lacking sense. But I'd rather just leave it as lacking heart. And just think of it as a heart deficiency. Not, uh, not the blood pumping organ in the chest, but the, the core of our being. We understand that. So subpoint A, Proverbs frequently describes and warns against heart deficiencies. With a typical NASB translation, lacking sense. Like the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. Alright, it's not just stupid. It reflects a heart deficiency. You are lacking, you are diminished in your lave capacity. That might be helpful. The Hebrew word lave, L-E-V or L-E-B, 3820 is the Strong's number. And it's like cardia in the New Testament, the Greek word cardia. The heart of man speaks of your innermost being. Remember you have the outer man and the inner man? Well, within the inner man 
what is the innermost. That's the heart. That's the core of who you are. I believe it's at the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And that's how I diagram the heart. And it's right there at the core. And when the heart is, is uh, damaged, when the heart is, uh, is uh, affected, that's a terrible thing. It's the heart that's deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why we have to be given a new heart, a clean heart at the point of our salvation. So let's look at some of these and you'll see what I'm talking about. Most of these we've covered already. In fact, all of them we've covered already except for there's one coming up in chapter 24. So other than the one in chapter 24, every other verse in this slide is one we've taught already in our Proverbs class. How about that? So Proverbs 6.32 The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. That is, is deficient of heart. Deficient of heart. He who would destroy himself does it. So it's more than just saying, I think the reason why I don't like the word lacking sense is because lacking sense just kind of seems like it's uh, stupid, it's boneheaded, it's, you know, just a dumb thing to do. Okay? No, I think um, walking out of the house without your house keys is a dumb thing to do. You know, leaving your cell phone at home is, is a dumb thing to do. I mean, there, there, there's plenty of things in life that are boneheaded things. I want, this text is bigger than that. This text, lacking sense to be diminished in heart, to have a heart deficiency. In other words, there is a lack in the core of your being. There is a lack in the core of your being. And now we're starting to approach what I think the Bible is getting at. Is how unstable are people? How unhappy are people? How, how is it? What is it that's driving them to this? What are they trying to find in the arms of some other woman? What, what are they trying to find? Uh, that why, why do they have such an empty heart? What's lacking in their core? that drives them to self-destructive behavior. He who would destroy himself does it. And this is so much, this is true for adultery, this is true for homosexuality, this is true for so many other human rebellions that are self-destructive behavior. Take 20 years off your life in pursuing the, the homosexual lifestyle. That's double smoking. Smoking only takes 10 years off your life. In any event. So that's Proverbs 6.32. Proverbs 7.7 I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man deficient in heart with lacking sense. There's a young man that's unstable with this heart deficiency. Heart deficiency. So we're going to see this over and over again. Heart deficiency is a problem. If you're lacking sense, if there's something missing in your heart, what do you need? You need to get heart. <laughs> the imperative we have today in 19 and verse 8 is to acquire heart. Get heart. And Proverbs teaches us how to do that. How do we get heart if we're lacking heart? Just like how do we get wisdom if we're lacking wisdom? How do we get heart if we're lacking heart? If we find that our heart, our core is damaged, 
Well, what are we going to do to fix it? What's God going to do to fix it? And how does Scripture do that? I'm glad you asked. We'll see here in a moment. Proverbs 9 and verse 4. Oh yeah, I didn't, did I read all of verse 7? Chapter 7, um, the young man was lacking sense, and so what is he doing? He's, he's just unstable every night. He's going to the harlot's house and all times of the day and night and repeatedly the lack of stability there. Alright, chapter 9 then in verse 4. Here's the invitation. Wisdom is now calling forth. Now it's personified as a woman because of the poetry and because the, the, the noun is a feminine noun. Chachma is a feminine noun. And so it's personified as a woman calling forth and inviting and that's the that's the kind of woman you want to be listening to. You don't want to be listening to that strange woman. So wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the top of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. So here we find that the Word of God is the provision for the one lacking sense. And, and it's a desperate provision. We absolutely need it. We have to start eating right now. We have to forsake the wrong way now because of this folly that we're presently engaged in is going to destroy us. It has to stop now. Don't think you can play with it for another week or month or or whatever. No, stop it today. Stop it today because you've already done the heart damage. Uh, Same chapter down to verse 16. And here's the woman of folly. So now there's another voice calling out in the streets. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. She can't wait to get them off the straight and narrow and get them in the crooked path. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says. Notice that's word for word identical. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says. So she's replicating what wisdom is offering. But it's not wisdom. It's not the Word of God. It's not divine viewpoint. There's a reason why she's very eager to meet these uh, heart-deficient individuals. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, this is going to be fun. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's how close he is. He is on the edge of destruction. He doesn't even know it. Is the, the heart deficiency. Chapter 10, so th- those are in the parental wisdom portion that the, the children need to get this before they leave home. Continues in adult capacity. Chapter 10. Remember in chapter 10 it's like the, the book gets a reboot that we, we see in chapter 10 and verse 1 it's like a whole new book heading, the Proverbs of Solomon. So that heading is showing us, hey, we're in a new section now as these Proverbs have been collected and and placed in the canon. 
So we have the childhood Proverbs, now we have the adult capacity Proverbs in uh, chapter 10 and following. Verse 13 says, On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who has a heart deficiency, him who lacks understanding, him who is heart lacking. His core is lacking. Verse 21, the, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for the heart deficiency, the lack of understanding. So it's curious to me, and I don't know why they do this. The, uh, the fact is when you look up lave, you can run the ser- lave search in Logos and you can find all the, wor- the uses of lave in, in the book of Proverbs. And you're going to find that a lot, most of the times it's heart, but sometimes it's wisdom, sometimes it's understanding, sometimes it's sense. They've got this variety of, of expressions for it. And, um, and I get that. I mean, there are, that's not wrong per se if you're trying to communicate a nuance of something, but I think sometimes in communicating that nuance you miss the big deal. You miss the fact that this is, this is heart every single time. This is the core of the person's being every single time. And if it's lacking, it needs to be filled. So that's chapter 10. Over to chapter 11. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense. Remember, we're supposed to love our neighbor. But in despising our neighbor, it, it, damage, it produces the heart damage. You're lacking sense. But a man of understanding keeps silent. Chapter 12 and verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Live your life in frittering away everything and and having no meaning and just uh, this life, he who pursues worthless things. If you're pursuing Belial, if you're pursuing the worthless things and neglecting the, uh, the truth of the Word of God, it's going to do some heart damage. You're lacking sense. You are heart deficient. I don't know why this, I don't know, does it surprise you? It shouldn't surprise us. We understand in the human experience that we can have uh, diet and behavior, lifestyle issues that can, uh, that can produce heart difficulties. <laughs> so why not understand that in the spiritual realm? If our spiritual diet is malnourished, if our spiritual exercise is non-existent, if our if we're engaged in self-destructive behavior, is there any uh, is there any wonder that we're damaged? We become damaged goods. The heart is uh, is is impacted. In a way, it's like a little piece of your heart was ripped out. The core of who you are. You're now deficient. Heart deficient. I wonder if it ever reaches that point, what Colonel Theme called the, the blackout of the soul. You know, you reach a certain point with prolonged carnality, with prolonged reversion. You know, if, if this heart deficiency is a model, then it's like piece by piece by piece, the, the heart is diminished to the point that what's left? You've got a tiny fragment of a heart left. Not a good thing. All right, so that's chapter 12, chapter 15. In verse 21, 
folly is joy to him who lacks sense. In other words, if you're heart deficient, <laughs> and you're going to just laugh and, and enjoy and have all kinds of fun with uh, the folly of this world. But a man of understanding walks straight. Twice in chapter 17, the lacking heart. Verse 16 says, Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? When he's lacking heart? We discussed this. How do you buy wisdom anyway? Why do you think it's there for the purchasing? I think you reach a certain point with your soul damage, with your heart damage, you reach a certain point that you've, you're completely uh, out of tune with anything in the spiritual realm. And you think your money can save you. You start thinking, yeah, I've got enough money to throw up problems. I can, I can take care of anything. It's not a money issue. Wisdom can't be purchased. Verse 18 says, A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. This damaged heart is making dumb business decisions and becoming unequally yoked in, in these endeavors. Why are you becoming guarantor in the presence of his neighbor? Don't do that. Chapter 6, in fact, warns, get out of that as quick as you can. All right, and then the final one, which we have not gotten to yet in the process of this series, is in chapter 24. Verse 30 says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense the man deficient in heart. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles, its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Well, <laughs> okay, if he wasn't a sluggard, that wouldn't have happened. If he wasn't heart damaged, that wouldn't have happened. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. You know, kind of a good idea to learn from somebody else's divine discipline than, than do it yourself. <laughs> I recommend that. If you, see, if you see somebody else going through divine discipline, then, then learn from that and make sure you're not walking down that same road. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is the sing-song that shows up several times in Proverbs. Your poverty will come like a robber and your want like an armed man. The want like an armed man, that's, uh, that want speaks of the lack, speaks of the deficiency. And, and and I don't know, I mean, if the poetry here supports it, I haven't dug into the Hebrew on this yet, but it seems like if the lack gets so powerful, if the want becomes so compelling, look how enslaved you become to it. Look how, like an armed man. It's like the soldier shows up and, and you're going to do what he says. <laughs> He's like an armed man and, and, and you're at his mercy. This want, this lack is leaving you completely um, you know, helpless at that point. Alright, so this whole idea of acquiring heart, get heart. When the Bible says get heart. Uh, I agree, it's a good idea. <laughs> uh, because the, lacking heart is a terrible thing. And uh, anything that's going to cause my heart to lack, anything that's going to promote that heart deficiency, I've got to stop that as soon as possible, and I've got to get more heart. In other words, establish a core. I think in the New Testament the phrases are 
to be rooted and grounded in the truth. Get core, have a core solidity to our spiritual walk. Acquiring heart is not only is it the remedy to lacking sense, but it's also the genuine origin of self-nefesh love. Write this down and think about it. I coined this expression and I, I like it more and more. It's not self-love. Well, it is, but it's self-nefesh, your soul love. Self-nefesh love. Acquiring heart. When the Bible says get heart, the one who gets heart loves himself. He who gets heart loves his soul. Loves his soul. And this will take some work. I want to talk about this some because the um, because of the day and age in which we live. Ours is a culture of, of self, of idolatry. The worship of self, the serving of self. And the idea of self-love is typically a self-esteem issue thing. Uh, I'm okay, you're okay, and, uh, uh, and, and, and things there. And I find that the world approach to loving yourself is anything but biblical. But we, we need to understand God's standard for self-love. Otherwise, how do we obey love your neighbor as yourself? Right? If you're out of whack on how you love yourself, then you're going to be out of whack on how you love your neighbor. And even how to love God. So again, this is the consequence in Proverbs 19.8a. It says, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul, his own nephesh. And so this is something we've got to uh, recognize. What kind of love is this? Of course, it's not Greek, so it's not New Testament, so it's not. It's going to be more difficult to try to break down the agape phileo distinctions, because the Hebrew ahav does not uh, always break down those distinctions in ways that the New Testament does. But to love a soul, why would we love our soul? Why would we not love our soul for the right reasons? See, to love a soul. And uh, the problem with a, with a lacking heart, there's going to be no love of nephesh. But with, uh, with acquiring heart, the one who gets heart, the one who's grounded in the Word of God whereby his core is solid, acquiring heart is the genuine origin of self-nephesh love. If you're solid in your core, you're going to be secure in your own soul. I think that's what this love is dealing with here. Anyway, these are some of these things. Um, let me give you another scripture I think that will relate to this. Because you say, well, what's the mechanism for this? How do I do this? It says, he who gets heart, yeah, I want to do that. Make that me, but how, do, how, how can I make that me? Well, listen to reproof. The mechanism for acquiring heart is to listen to reproof. You want to get heart? You want to make sure you're solid in heart? Then let the Word of God kick you in the butt. <laughs> you know? Let the Word of God just hit you between the eyes and, and rejoice in that. Embrace that. 
And the more that you submit to the discipline of the Word of God, the, the stronger your heart will become. You're acquiring heart in that process. Back to Proverbs 15 again in verse 32. We were just here a little bit ago looking at verse 21. Proverbs 15, 32. He who neglects discipline despises himself. We don't want to despise ourselves. Despises our soul. We want to love our soul. So he who neglects discipline despises his soul. But he who listens to reproof gets heart. Acquires understanding. Cross that off. (laughs) Gets heart. Proverbs 15, 32b. So you've made two pen and ink changes this morning in in your Bibles. In, uh, in Proverbs 19.8, you're crossing off the word wisdom and you're writing in the word heart. He who acquires heart loves his soul. So in Proverbs 19.8, you've got to change the word wisdom to heart. Here, in Proverbs 15.32, you've got to cross off the word understanding and put the word heart. He who listens to reproof acquires heart. This is how you get heart. If your heart deficient, listen to the rebuke. Listen to the Word of God reprove you. My pastors are commanded to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Literally all patience and instruction. An infinite amount of patience to be the pastor of a church. So the mechanism for acquiring heart is to listen to reproof. Rejecting discipline is the origin of self-nefesh loathing. So which do you want to have? Self-nefesh loving or self-nefesh loathing? <laughs> Love it or loathe it, right? Your, your nefesh, your soul. And it's interesting to me. I'm glad we got here this morning. This, this verse, um, it just jumps out and we almost skipped over, almost missed it, in, in uh, because we handled verses eight and nine or seven and nine already. Um, but there it is, sitting there in verse eight. Before we get to verse ten, the uh, self nefesh love or self nefesh loathing, and there doesn't seem to be a third option. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem to be a middle ground anywhere. It seems to be a one or the other kind of thing. Do you love your soul or do you loathe your soul? And why is that? Well, if you listen to the rebuke, if you submit to the reproof, then the consequence is the nefesh love, soul love. But if you reject the reproof, as it says here, he who neglects discipline despises his soul, loathes his own soul. Anyway, these things come out. I think the, the, this principle gets uh, illustrated in the book of Job. He reached a point where he started to loathe his own soul. He was loathing his own life. He wanted to die. And in Job, the book of Job. And uh, he had to listen to the reproof. He had to confess. And by Proverbs, thankfully, by Job 42, he did. He repented in dust and ashes and he, he listened to the reproof. 
so he could love his soul instead of loathing his soul. So it's interesting to me. And this whole uh, self-nefesh love and the, and the things here. I believe that self-nefesh love must be biblically appropriate so that the love of neighbor is rightly applied. Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself or as your own soul. I don't think nefesh is in Leviticus 19.18. No, that's just a pronoun. Verse 17 says, uh, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. Again, the heart issue, the lave is in view here with whether you're hating your neighbor or loving your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anyway, different ways to understand that and the applications to be made there. But I would put forth that if your self-love is biblically inappropriate, then it's not really love. At that point, it's just idolatry. At that time, it's, it's what the Bible warns about, that in the end times, men will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that uh, lover of self, and that's a little bit different term because it's philautoi, it's the philos love, but the, the lover of self is, stands opposed to the lover of God. Anyway, we've got to be biblically appropriate. Loving ourselves, not for the, not for the, uh, the wrong reasons. See, this is what it comes down to. The, today's idolatry is all about my self-actualization, my self fulfillment. My, it's, all, it's all Carl Jung when it comes down to it. To be self-realized and self-actualized and, and, uh, and, I'm, and so I'm going to love myself just the way I am. And you have to accept me the way I think I am. So yeah, that means if <laughs> that means every perversion under the sun that's what makes me happy because that's how I'm defining myself. And that's you know, I mean, it's just, it's insanity. It's satanic insanity. But here we are as a culture. If, if the culture slides anymore, we're going to have to find another word for it because I don't think it's, it's even appropriate to call it culture at that point. <laughs> it's like an anti-culture. Whatever the opposite of culture is. And so we want to love ourselves. That means the self-nefesh love. That means where we are... Um, Submitting to the discipline. We are paying heed to the reproof. And Hebrews is telling us the same thing. Didn't I just preach this on Sunday? No, it's coming up next Sunday. That all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet afterwards, when you've been trained by it, the fact is, is that when we listen to the reproof, we walk away knowing that our Father loves us. <laughs> our Father loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to re- rebuke us. 
And on that basis then, can I love my own soul? You bet. Absolutely, I can love my nefesh. Because my God loves me enough to discipline me and to, to produce my growth. It's a glorious thing. He who, he who guards understands. So there's a, there's a B part to this verse as well. He who guards understanding finds a good thing. There's three times in Proverbs that we're told you can find a good thing. You can find a good thing when you acquire a wife. <laughs> so that's one good thing. This is another good thing. When you guard understanding. And this really is understanding here in the second part of the verse. It's not heart. It's heart in the first half of the verse. It is understanding in the second part of the verse. So he who guards understanding finds a good thing. And then in 1822, that's the uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And in 1620, he who gives attention to the word finds a good thing. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So three times that Proverbs tells us, you found a good thing there. (laughs) The word of God, a wife, and understanding. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for providing a voice to get through the hour. Father, uh, as always, this time of year, the cedar's in your hands. Um, Of course, if I can make a request, <laughs> I'd like this to be a short cedar season, but that's uh, that's your good pleasure too, Father. You've got a plan, and I just thank you for being faithful. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry for teaching. I thank you for the book of Proverbs. I pray that we chew on what you've taught us here this morning, that we consider <clears throat> what it means to love our soul, what it means to loathe our soul, and, uh, and how it is we can go from loathing to loving by uh, paying heed to the reproof. And Father, I just thank you that uh, you've laid out these things in the way that you have. Thank you for loving us and disciplining us. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.